You're invited to join Anna and Sam at our new regional event, the Food and Faith Gathering. A collaboration between the Food and Faith podcast and the Keep and Till. On November 9th, 2019 at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, you'll join congregations, practitioners, dreamers, and advocates as we discuss issues around food, ecology, community, and social justice. Head over to foodandfaithpodcast.org to register. Tickets are $25 each, which include breakfast and lunch. We'll be joined by Heber Brown, Karen Mann, Dave Baldwin, and Sam as speakers, along with a trip to the Keep and Tell Farm for lunch and for worship. And if you want to be a founding member of the Patreon supporters team for the pod by committing to give $5 a month, you can attend the gathering for free. So head over to foodandfaithpodcast.org slash gather to register. That's foodandfaithpodcast.org slash gather. We'll see you on November 9th at McDaniel College at the Food and Faith Gathering. Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamlin. Hello, Food and Faith Podcast community. We are thrilled to have Alice Connor as our guest today. Alice is an Episcopal priest and a chaplain on a college campus. She wrote Fierce, Women of the Bible and Their Stories of Violence, Mercy, Bravery, Wisdom, Sex, and Salvation. And she has a book that we're looking forward to talking about today and that you all can order or go find at your local bookstore called How to Human, An Incomplete Manual for Living in a Messed Up World. Also interested to know that Alice is a certified Enneagram teacher and a stellar pie maker. She lives for challenging conversations and has a high tolerance for awkwardness, which seems like a great fit for our podcast. (laughs) And for college campuses. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And for the, the, uh, yes. Just thinking about how awkward I am. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So we're thrilled to have an awkward conversation with you, Alice. Thanks for being so (laughs) glad. So will you tell our listeners your Enneagram number if you're a teacher? Sure. I uh, fixated the one on the Enneagram. Um, oh, typically, yes. the, right? It was my <laughs> among friends. <laughs> uh, typically leaning on the two wing, though I've noticed lately that uh, I am connecting pretty strongly with the nine. Um, so, yeah. And so do you have like, do you have like your Enneagram thought for the day for all of us ones who are trying to figure out how to live in a messed up world? Oh, just be <laughs> gentle with yourselves, friends. It's yeah. it's not as big a deal as you think. Whatever yeah. it is. Uh, amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> that seems good across the numbers. <laughs> yeah, but us ones are really good at really good. <laughs> every yes. the world's yes. coming to an end. So, <laughs> well, let's let's begin as we often do. Um, Alice, share with us a little bit about your geography and how yeah. you understand that geography on whether it's current, previous. Uh, spiritual, physical, or otherwise. Um, yeah. so tell us a little bit about your geography. So I was thinking about, because uh, you guys sent this, this question to me ahead of time, which is good, so I could kind of marinate on it a little bit. Um, I grew up in a family that was really big on cooking. So I mean, I realized food and faith, so I'm thinking about the food part, right? But like that was, 
huge part of my geography is that my uh, my like my literal geography my my parents uh, while I was quite small wanted to have a sustainable farm uh, mm -hmm. and so I grew up on that for some time uh, watched them raise and slaughter chickens and rabbits and <laughs> grow corn and all kinds of stuff um, that was for a number of years and it, it like that really shaped my early years I think um, and we moved to South Carolina uh, for my dad's I guess second church uh, skipping ahead a number of years here and uh, like the that's where I went to high school junior high and high school and I and I imagine that's where a lot of people in America kind of start to to wake up the, to the fact that they're people um, not necessarily wake up to our Enneagram types or anything like that but just sort of this is the formative years of our lives right mm -hmm. and doing that in a fairly liberal family in fairly conservative South Carolina um, was really sort of fascinating. Um, not specifically to do with food, but but really sort of shaped, um, what do I wanna say? Sh shaped my outlook, I guess, shaped my, my lens maybe uh, for how I was in the world. I definitely became a bit more combative um, verbally, that is not, not physically. <laughs> uh, I, I found myself having to defend my beliefs a lot. Uh, though looking back on it, one wonders if I actually had to defend myself or if I just wanted to, <laughs> uh, it's hard to say. Um, but that, that time was so formative. I mean, for music and fashion and things like that too, of course, but, but for this sense of like, people who disagree with each other how do they live together how do they talk to each other just literally in a regular conversation um and so that that sort of those are two moments from a long life but um i think the idea of creation care and receiving our sustenance from the earth and also this sort of question of how we are in relationship with each other these are kind of huge parts of my life now, um, doing my campus ministry and, and where I live in Cincinnati. Um, our campus ministry has a garden in the front um, and it is more or less successful. <laughs> um, we've grown some really massive zucchini, accidentally That's massive. Awesome. <laughs> but, but surprisingly tasty for giant zucchini actually. Um, and some tomatoes and herbs and uh, rhubarb and things like that. Um, and my students really love cooking with them. We have a baker's a bread guild and that sort of thing. Um, and so then sort of tying that back in, the geography where I find myself in this campus ministry where I work and what this book is sort of writing about is the college campus, the space where no two people agree with each other on anything. Right. Um, and many things that are part of sort of the cultural conversation are very present um, and contentious on campus. And so how do we talk to each other here? How do I, how do I help them as a spiritual leader to see each other's humanity and that sort of thing? Um, yeah, so that's my geography. As I love it. And well, that leads right to where I wanted to start with the book. Um, so for our listeners who I'm sure will order and read it themselves soon, but they haven't yet. Um, each of your chapters are like a bit of advice in themselves or what would mm -hmm. you call it? Like a, 
yeah, like words of wisdom maybe, or like, like the, the title sort of sums up a series of stories and thoughts about a particular thing. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. There's like, I mean, you could just have the list of them and you would get something out of it. So, I mean, of course, being food and faith and all podcasts and all, I was really drawn to chapter 10, which is if we eat together, we will not betray one another. Yeah. And I really appreciated you bringing in both the, the like idyllic beauty of this idea of coming around the table and mm-hmm. being able to understand one another and having that commonality. Mm-hmm. Also that there's still betrayal and that idea of even Jesus at the last supper that, you know, Judas did betray him, right? Like, like that there, um, there isn't necessarily full agreement and loyalty is not necessarily the result of eating together but that yeah. there is something powerful and profound that happens. So I just would mm-hmm. love to hear, um, and feel free to repeat some of the stories and things that are in the chapter, but to hear you speak more on that idea of the tension of how eating together both brings us together, but it also doesn't necessarily erase difference. Well, yeah, so so the title comes from uh, this, this Ethiopian place that my husband and I used to go to in Columbus. Um, their menu... Uh, somewhere on the back of it they're unfortunately closed now but on the back of it somewhere that was sort of a an Eritrean proverb if we eat together we will not betray each other and um the if anybody has eaten Eritrean or Ethiopian food you know that you generally get served on these massive massive plates um it's it's like a twice as big as a serving plate needs to be uh and um and there's this giant bread and, and sort of you, you eat with your fingers and you traditionally you actually serve each other um, that you would sort of scoop up the best bits and hand them to your friend who's next to you. Um, and I love this idea that I, I think even historically, this is sort of part of what has cemented like legal deals and things like that is, is let's, we're going to, we're going to dine together. We're going to drink together. Um, this is, this is a symbol that you're not going to poison me if we're eating the same food. Um, whether or not literally it's about that, it's sort of this, you know, we are, we are in the same room together. We are to some extent family. I don't want to like lead on that too hard, but sort of this, this um, commitment that we have to each other. And so like that is sort of beautiful and rings true to me in a lot of ways. But yeah, as you, as you mentioned, I mean, the, the Christian faith certainly has its, it's one particular example of, how eating together, in fact, did not stop betrayal. Um, and one of the things I talk about there is that that uh, Judas is such a fascinating character to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know about how you guys feel about him. Um, I I have mixed feelings about Judas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's that's totally say more. Fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the mixed feelings are like, yeah, of course. So he betrayed Jesus for money or whatever. Um, and the gospel of John in particular, I think that's a lot of parenthetical notes about him. Like, oh yes, this is Judas, you know, the man who would betray Jesus. Don't forget. Um, it almost, it's almost like protesting too much to try to make you dislike Mm -hmm. this guy who was one of the 12 that Jesus chose. Yeah. I mean, he lived with those guys for three years. He, he wasn't all bad. Right. Um, and and striking that 
he was invited to that last supper. He yeah. was there. Jesus wasn't like, oh, I know you're going to betray me, so we're not going to eat together. Like that wasn't actually a prerequisite. His loyalty, his ultimate loyalty wasn't a prerequisite right. to share the meal, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and sort of that, like the, even the concept of betrayal requires a certain closeness, you know, that some right. random person on the street being rude to me is rude, but isn't betrayal because I don't know them. Right. I haven't shared meals with them. I haven't shared my intimate life with them. Whereas presumably Judas and Jesus and the others were intimate with each other. And, and so for him to do what he did is that much more painful because they trusted him. Right. Um, I don't know. It's, it's sort of a complex thing, right? Like the sort of the wisdom is the wisdom from our Eritrean friends is that if we eat together, we won't betray each other. And I think much of the time that's probably true. Like specifically that when we choose to spend time with each other, when we, um, yeah, I mean, when we choose to give each other the gift of cooking mm-hmm. for one another, um, or even just, you know, snapping a tomato off the, the vine and handing it to our friend, um, that that's delightful and a joy and even in a tiny way connects us. I think that's very real. But also, and the other side of that is that, that so often it's not true, that, that we eat with each other and someone is still just a right bastard to us um whether it's sort of an abusive household or it's you know i mean it could be anything i mean i was thinking about this the other day that how many how many people who let me get a little political for a second how many people who think that we should build a wall excuse me on our southern border or um who think that mexicans in particular but perhaps all immigrants are some sort of problem or threat how many of those people regularly eat Mexican food. Right. And that's not like meant to be a gotcha, like, you know, baha, therefore everything about you is wrong. It's more like, this is so much more complicated and connected than we think. Yeah. Well, and how much of our food is grown by migrant workers and how much of our food comes from Central America and South America Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how much of our food system relies on immigrant workers. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so how do you, how do you personally practice that um, within your family, um, within your campus ministry and all the ways that that plays out? Like, yeah. has, has there been an instance where that eating together has, not to say has erased betrayal, but has actually brought you and the people that you're in conversation with closer? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the big example is probably uh, a couple of people that I talked about in a different chapter. I think it might've been the first one, take people seriously. A um, couple of students we had early on who uh, very much identified on the more conservative side of of politics and religion, um, and for whatever reason they they found a home with us because uh, we we tend to, the the community itself tends more liberal. This is actually sort of as a side note um, the diverse to me one of the diversities that's the most important to pay attention to within our community is that of sort of political or religious alignment. Um, where we kind of separate ourselves via progressive and conservative. And, you know, on a college campus, you tend, things tend to be more liberal. So we had these, these students early on, and they were very sort of attracted to the conversations we were having. And I was, I mean, I didn't have very many students, but I was also like, 
I, I need to hear your voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like this is what we're talking about. What you care about is not where I am. Um, so help me understand that more. And that concept helped me understand one of the sort of abiding truths to think of our community. But, but they started, the two of them started coming to Nosh, which is our Sunday night dinner church. And they were there the whole time they were finishing up their grad work. And it was interesting because we, you know, we, we came together. We, we were able to listen to each other and to love each other for who we were rather than who we wanted the other person to be, if that makes sense. Because you actually knew it, began to know each other, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, and, and actually, one of them has come back. I, I invited him to come back because we were very aware that we were missing that voice at the table. And so, he, you know, he's off in the professional world. And I said, do you have Sundays available? Because I would love to have you at the table again. Um, if for nothing else, to, to show other conservative students who might show up, they're welcome. Yeah. That, that they would not be the only voice. Um, but also to provide that voice for the rest of us. And it's not, you know, it's not perfect. It's very much a, a work in progress. But I, would, well, I mean, I would say it's probably my best example, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you have this quote, um, eating together provides an excuse for curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was so spot on. And I don't know, my experience with, you know, with a dinner church setting or potluck or, you know, even dinner party is you have to have like a high tolerance for awkward because yes. it's not necessarily like the most comfortable, easy conversation. Um, but that, that like space and that even like purposeful curiosity, like going into it saying, okay, this is a time for me to be curious. It just opens up the possibility of relational connections and being changed and getting to know somebody and other people in a way that I don't find happens necessarily in a lot of settings that there's a there's a space for the depth and the curiosity in and amongst like the small talk and the awkwardness. Yes. I was so down on small talk for so much of my life. <laughs> I remember watching my grandmother do it and just be like, what are you even talking about? You're, there's nothing happening here. Um, and it just like, it annoyed me. And now I look back on it and think like she could talk to anybody. <laughs> now, to be fair, she could talk to anybody about nothing. Her willingness to engage people uh, about lots of things was, was just really fascinating to me. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's certainly not perfect. I mean, just because you're at a dinner party and eating together, doesn't mean that you will therefore be non-judgmentally curious or gentle with them and yourself, right? Like <laughs> we can argue about anything at any time, but because you're eating something, you have more time, if nothing else. It's an invitation to say, all right, well, so who actually are you? And can I, can I find something to be curious about? And whether it's a commonality or learning something new, there's a, there's a space. Also, I mean, I kind of hate this as an introvert, but like you're kind of stuck and you actually have to keep talking. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, like I hate and appreciate that about like a dinner church model of which I purposefully planted and led a church that had one. So like, I'm obviously all for it, but I also <laughs> kind of hate it. Right. <laughs> but I think that that, I love it. It's that collective commitment to it though. Right. Yeah. Like, okay, we're going to do this again. Like I want to sit down and I'm going to have another conversation. I want to keep showing yeah. up to this. We, we find it important at Nosh to, and in fact, I don't think I said this on Sunday, but I typically will say, you know, we have these two tables where you can sit and, you know, if you're, if you're needing some time to introvert, there's other spaces upstairs and in the basement, you are very welcome to go and be by yourself for a little bit. Just if you don't mind, let us know so we know where you are, <laughs> but take the time that you need 
for yourself so that you can then come back into community and be part of those curious conversations. Which almost, I feel like gives a permission to show up at the table in a different way as well, right? Mm -hmm. Like if it's not, we're all forced to do this, but it's here are the various options, then there's a, there's a ability to be present in a different way. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things I love is I looking through the book and just something that I guess in, as an Enneagram one, it just resonates with me. Yeah. Like, like this freedom to like not have everything put together. Um, yes. Like for instance, you know, sucking at something is the first step to being sort of good at something. And I'm like, yes. that's not my intuition, but those are, those are really helpful words for me to hear. Um, <laughs> good. This, there's this spirit of like experimentation that I, I feel throughout, throughout this. Yes. So I, I just kind of want to, I just want to tap you, see if I'm reading it right. And then just have you kind of share a little bit about what that, ex- what that experimentation in life like looks like for you. It was sort of a revelation and I, I definitely don't practice this as well as I would like to, but it was a revelation a few years ago to sort of realize that, that yeah, I'm, I'm not supposed to have all the right answers. Mm-hmm. Um, like regardless of Enneagram type, we're literally all learning all the time. Um, I, I think the the moment that really kind of blew my mind was watching my daughter when, after I had her, like we had to put her in tummy time, called it tummy time boot camp. And the parents out there know exactly what I'm talking about. It's horrible because babies literally do not know how to hold their heads up. They never have had to. Like they're brand new and they didn't have to like strengthen those muscles when they were in the womb, nor for the first brief period of their lives. So like, it's miserable because they've never done it before. It's really hard. And like that sort of as a metaphor for, oh, right. Every time I do a new thing, or even when I do the things that I've done multiple times before, it's still a new version of it in this moment. And I don't have to have it perfect. Where, where my natural inclination is, oh, I think I'm gonna try this new craft project. I'm gonna learn how to, uh, oh, what is that? I just learned about it, the mending of, of uh, ceramics with gold between them. Right. I'm not actually learning how to do this, but I can totally see myself going, oh, I'm going to do that. And I buy the stuff and I do it and it's shit. And I go, well, what's wrong with me? Right. And why do I, I'm not even going to try that in the first place. Why can't place. I do this immediately? Yeah. No, false. Of course you can't do it immediately. <laughs> Nobody can. That's not a thing. It yeah. takes a lot of practice. You talk about sort of the, the child end of things. I find myself reminding congregation members all the time who are turning 70, 80, 90 and yes. trying to, and, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, things are breaking and they're not working properly and all the stress yes. that's around that. I'm like, yeah, you've been around on the earth for a while, but you've never been this age before. And right. there's, all this, there's all this stuff you have to learn about being elderly and this figuring out how to live well. And, but I don't think it ever occurred to them sometimes that like they've never done this before. And therefore there's a lot of learning and there's a lot of messing yeah. up with those. And it's okay that you mess it up and it's okay that things are not yeah. the way that you remember it. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. Like that. I really, I so appreciate Jake, the dog from adventure time saying that sucking at something is the first step to being sort of good at something because like just, just this recognition, it's not even like, I think a lot of us, even if we don't do it very well, we think, well, at least I'm going to be okay at something. You know, it's, it's right. going to be functional. But then we do something and it just falls to pieces and we're like, what is, how is this bad? Why am I so bad? You know, and it's like, no, that's not, that's not real. Um, it's, and so then this is sort of where we came up with this idea of experimentation that 
while I am not a scientist and any scientists who are listening, I'm aware that this is an oversimplification, <laughs> but that sort of the scientific method as we learned it in, you know, junior high school or whatever, where you sort of notice something and you ask a question, huh, what if this thing? Right. And then you form a hypothesis. I think if I, if this, if we do this thing, then this other thing will happen. And then you experiment with it. You can do that with literal scientific processes, but you can also do that with your feelings or with your spiritual life or with your relationships to say, you know, what, what if I respond to this difficult person in my life in a different way? What are the other ways that I could respond to them? Let's see tomorrow if I respond this way, what happens? And then, to, and then however it turns out, because it's not like if I do this experiment, then everything's going to be better. It's if I do this experiment, I will now have more information. Oh, isn't that interesting? When I responded to them this way, they responded this other way. Neat. Right. <laughs> or, or wow, that was terrible. Let's <laughs> not, not do, try that again. <laughs> also neat. Yeah. Because I now have more information, but also um, I have taken the step not to be in the same place I always have been. Mm-hmm. So like, that last, the last chapter, I think it's the, the conclusion I talk about um, how you are is not inevitable, which I think sort of relates to what you're talking about, sort of this idea of experimentation, or particularly as one's sort of this idea of being at some sort of complete perfect space uh, of humanness it doesn't exist because we can keep shifting, we can keep changing. So the way you are right now is not the only way you could ever be. Thank God. Thank God. Right. And isn't that, <laughs> as Christians, isn't that one of the things that our faith teaches us, right? <laughs> is that like so. life, death, and resurrection, that there's yes. a change, that Jesus is always calling us to change, yes. <laughs> which must mean that we are one way and maybe we can be another way. Yes. Yeah. But, she, but, that's, not, but that's not rewarded in our culture. It's no, not. I think is really stressful. Like you talk, and, and I'm still meditating on what you mean by <laughs> messed up world. Uh-huh. Um, this is one of the things that kind of comes to me is that, yeah, like we don't re- we don't reward the things that make us most fully human, and that's tremendously messed up. Like you know, the expectation I graduate college oh. and all of a sudden I've got a degree and I'm supposed to be perfect at something, and that's how I get hired and that's how I make a living. That's right. messed up. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> So yeah, our faith calls us to that. We are we are being made a new creation and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But it's tough to be that way it in is. a way that, that doesn't reward it at all. That's that's exactly right. And I think much of scripture would say the world is not going to reward you for this. It is foolish. And yet it is it is deeply wise to do it this way, but the world typically wants not always, but typically wants something that's easier, more obvious, fits into binaries, that sort of thing. Well, and circling back to the idea of eating together or alone, I mean, I think even the way that culture deals often with food now, I mean, you can get food delivered to your door. I mean, if you have the resources Mm -hmm. and a door to have it delivered to, you can eat it alone. And I was really struck that often in my last church setting, I would say, you know, well, a number of our members of our community are eating dinner because they wouldn't have dinner otherwise. And Another section of them are eating because they'd be eating at their home alone. Mm-hmm. And those are both needs. Yeah. And just that idea of the way that you know, isolation, I think, connects with that need to have it all together or to not be able to be 
like I can't go out of my own little space because I can't present in this way that I think I'm expected to present right. um, or I might encounter the messiness of a conversation. Yeah. I think it's probably both of those things. Western values of individualism and I don't know how many people actually say pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, but it's sort of the aesthetic I think we have. Yeah. That you're supposed to be able to do this by yourself and you're not supposed to ask for help. And um, I mean, even how often do we, maybe sometimes people need the, like the actual food, mm-hmm. but sometimes we just need somebody else to be around and be like, yeah, that's rough. You know, like this, this whole doofy thoughts and prayers thing that happens after every mass shooting. It's like, yeah, your thoughts and prayers are totally useless in this moment. But the reason that people have said this for so long is because A, we feel helpless, yeah, particularly from a distance. And B, like when, when we really mean it, I mean, I definitely think that <clears throat> politicians don't always mean it. Um, but like, my thoughts are with you, right? That's, that's right. compassion is suffering with you. And sort of thoughts and prayers are shorthand for that but it's become a, a stupid shorthand that doesn't mean anything anymore. <laughs> you could say that, but I actually want to see you suffer with. I want to see mourning. And I yeah. Want, you know, as, as best we can, you know, to, act, yeah. to be doing what we can to participate in, you know, yeah. sort of a more communal kind of a morning. Yeah. And that's what exactly. I do. I mean, I, I think that's exactly what a lot of folks um, doing racial reconciliation work are saying is anymore. We don't want allies we want accomplices is the word yes. that they, uh, what they mean is like, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm glad that you will give intellectual assent to various propositions, but when you put your body in the way to protect my body, yeah, then I will believe you. Yeah. Then I will know that you are really suffering with me. And it's, and it's not from a, like, you need to hurt and I want revenge. It's from a, I need you with me. And truly all the way, you know, yeah. not just your thoughts, but yes your body, your prayers enacted, your, yeah. Yeah. The with part, right? Mm-hmm. If it's yeah, suffering exactly. with. Not near. <laughs> not near, not from observing from a distance that's <laughs> safe, actually with. I really would love for you to tell our listeners about your red couch. <laughs> Wait, is it red? Yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> um, because, yeah, well, they'll know why after you tell them. Yes, yes. Um, so a number of years ago, we sort of, we, I mean, all good ideas are stolen from somebody else, I think. Um, we sort of stole this idea from a group in Columbus, um, though our version of it is very different than the way they do it. Um, so we have this, uh, this Ikea couch with a red slipcover on it uh, that we put on wheels. And we have uh, now some other sort of living room apparatus, like, a, like an indoor-outdoor rug and a little end table. And a, we had a lamp. I had to throw it away, but anyway. Oh, poor lamb. Little side chair. And so it's like this little living room setup, and we roll it onto campus and we set up wherever we feel like it. We have a, an A frame chalkboard sign that obviously it's chalk, so you can put whatever you want to on it. So it can say lots of things. We, it'll say, like, rant to us about religion, we'll listen, or um, ambiguity is neither good nor bad, discuss, uh, which su- was surprisingly. <laughs> fruitful when we did that one. Interesting. Uh, I, philosophy majors came over and I was like, no. <laughs> um, and uh, up to the, the, the one that I usually put on there, which is particularly provocative, is uh, we are classy, well-educated Christians who say, and then I promised I wouldn't say the F-bomb on your podcast, but we use the F-bomb right there, uh, to say, 
like, yeah, it's, it's, the thing is magic. Um, people come over and talk to us about all kinds of stuff. And I, I think partly it's sort of the goofiness of the couch, but we definitely have sort of developed a reputation of actually listening where mm. uh, there are certainly religious groups who sort of create a, a bait and switch kind of situation or, you know, totally understandably because of the history of Christianity. Uh, anybody who looks at somebody with a cross or says they're Christians or whatever is going to look at you with a bit of, of doubt. Like who, yeah. who are you actually and what do you want from me? And our, we talked about this earlier, curiosity. That's, that's our entire goal is to be curious. Um, we are not there to argue with people. Um, what I've said to the students is, um, if you know something about what the person is talking to you about, obviously engage them with that. Like you don't bring your whole self to the conversation. That's fine. But this is not about convincing people of something. Mm -hmm. They may try to convince you of something. <laughs> we have no control over that. But we can say things like, you know, which I have done mul on multiple occasions. Uh, this is really interesting. I, I don't really agree with you on this particular subject but it doesn't really matter if I agree with you. This seems very important to you. Mm. Help me understand why it's so important to you. What difference does this make to your life? How does this make you a better person or a more compassionate person, that kind of thing. And that certainly has made some people just walk away because they didn't want to do that. They wanted to win. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but uh, like, I just, I, I don't, I don't approach it. We, we don't approach it as, as something you can win. It's something that you participate in because you're human beings. Um, and what's interesting is that sometimes people respond to that going, oh, that, huh, I don't know. Or, oh, yeah, 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 no, this is, this is really important to me because whatever. Um, and that then leads to a whole other kind of conversation. It's great. It's powerful. <laughs> it's that relational curiosity again, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Again, a space to actually connect as human beings. Yeah. Be it around a dinner table or on the red couch in the middle of, I'm picturing this like on the middle of like the sidewalk on in campus. Is that an accurate picture? Are you like yeah. outdoors? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's always outdoors. Um, I, I personally am very welcome inside most of the buildings. Uh, I mean all the buildings, but cause it's a huge campus, <laughs> but, uh, but that kind of setup usually needs to stay outside the buildings. Yeah. Well, I, that's, there's something powerful about taking that mm -hmm. out to the sidewalk. It's magic. I <laughs> Given the messed up world that we live in and yeah. the, the human beings that we are yet becoming, taking all of that into account and all the things we do wrong and all the things we mess up um, and all the things we suck at, nevertheless, what gives you hope at the end of the day? So I'm going to be honest and say this was the hardest question that you sent me, um, which shouldn't be given my Christian faith. I mean, probably the answer should be Jesus, um, which is true. So I was thinking about actually the, the parable that in some ways doesn't make a whole lot of sense and kind of makes me say, Jesus, I don't think you really know what you're talking about when it comes to agricultural metaphors. But uh, when he says, you know, the, the seeds, when they fall to the ground, they have to die before they grow again. I can't remember exactly how he says that's not the point. Um, he's a little off on the biology. He's a little off on the biology. Seeds generally don't die. They, now they certainly seem to, and that's fair. Yeah. Um, you know, there are seeds that require devastating forest fires to, to break open their shells so that they can germinate. So like fascinating stuff. Um, but they don't actually die. But I take his meaning that it, it looks like they're dying. Um, there, there's that sort of 
maybe it's trite at this point, but the, there's a t-shirt or whatever that, that people have now that says, uh, they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Right. And like that really speaks to me, like from, from Jesus words, from my experience, from studying history. I mean, we've been through really, really awful times before and we are now and we will again, but there's, there's always the possibility of resurrection. And, and one of my, one of my colleagues at the church says, um, resurrection only happens to dead things. Man, that makes so much sense. Like whether or not, I mean, obviously we have the experience of actual death, but there's also lots of bits of our lives that feel like death. You know, it could be a divorce, a breakup, a friend breakup, um, you know, somebody commenting about something you've done in a way that just destroys you inside. It feels like death. And not that those are good, but that they are necessary for new life. So it gives me hope that there is always new life regardless of the death that we experience, regardless of what it is. There's always some new life coming towards us. That is painful and beautiful. And I think it's something that I really appreciated throughout your book was your willingness to wrestle with that and to not shy away from the fact that the death in whatever kind it is, is essential for the new life. And maybe that's kind of one of the things about how the human. So we could talk for a lot longer about all these (laughs) things because um, they are so essential to this thing of being a human being. Um, But our time is up and we are so grateful for you spending time with us. And we would love people to know where they could find you and your book and sure what to you know what uh, social media mediums to follow you on Indeed. to stay in conversation well thank you guys so much for for having me on i think it was a really lovely conversation yeah if if uh, people want to look more up about those books or about me i have a website which of course is aptly named aliceconnor.com with an o-r <laughs> and uh i'm in all the various social medias though i did just get rid of twitter and facebook from my phone which was an excellent choice Awesome. Well, I hope our listeners will read your book and follow you. And um, I certainly am really grateful to have gotten to know you a bit and look forward to our continued conversations. Indeed. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, Garden Church, and the Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deaver. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.